if you are a, a movie watcher, and some of you may be, some of you may not, maybe you remember a movie from several years ago, a suspense movie starring Bruce Willis called The Sixth Sense. Anybody ever see that movie? Anybody ever see that one? Okay. If you saw it, then, then you know how it plays out. If you didn't see it, let me give you the general plot of this particular movie. It's a suspense movie. It's kind of a thriller. It's one that, that your heart sort of races at certain times where you're scared at others, where you're sort of surprised, where you're a little baffled, and it's one of those where you, you watch it the first time and you think, now, wait a minute, what, what happened? How did I miss that and that and that? Bruce Willis plays a psychiatrist who is trying to help a young boy with his visions, he says, of dead people. It's that movie where he says, maybe you saw the previous, I see dead people. Maybe you've seen that. And so throughout the movie, there's this relationship that Bruce Willis has with Haley Joel Osment, the little guy who's in the movie. And he tries to help him deal with his psychological issues. And it's full of twists and turns and all sorts of things. And ultimately, what he discovers at the end is that he's somewhat surprised as to who is really dead and who's really alive. And I won't spoil the plot for you if you have any uh, inclination to go and rent it and watch it, but... Bruce Willis at the very end of the movie, and everybody is sort of shocked to discover who's really alive and who's really dead in this particular movie. I want you to turn with me to James chapter 2. As you think about who's really alive and who's really dead, and I want you to look with me in James chapter 2, which is over in the New Testament. If you brought a Bible this morning, I hope that you'll get it out and use it. I hope that you'll follow along with us. If you didn't bring a Bible, I encourage you to do that if you come next week, and if for some reason you don't have a Bible that's in a, a, a translation that you find helpful and readable, then let us know. I'd certainly be happy to help provide one from the church for you. Make sure that you've got God's Word in your hand. It will change your life. It is meant to be used each and every day. It's not something that is meant to be put on a shelf or just got out on Sundays, and so we want to make sure you've got that in your hand each day. But I want you to look with me in James chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 14. James here, the brother of Jesus, is writing to a group of Jewish believers, folks who once followed Judaism and now have become Christians because they believe in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and they have placed their trust in him. And so he writes to them, telling them, here's what authentic Christianity is all about. Maybe we're struggling with that, and so he tries to help them. And he gets to verse 14 of chapter 2. And he says something that maybe you've heard before, maybe you've, maybe you've read this, maybe you've heard this, and he says in verse 14, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and they shudder. Verse 20, foolish man, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? We're going to stop there for this morning and we're going to look, focus on the first half of this particular passage that James is trying to help us take the vital signs of Christianity. Maybe you've been to uh, 
the doctor or hospital recently or in years past, and you know one of the first things they do is take your vital signs. They, they check certain things out. They want to know how tall you are, how much you weigh, and, and, and if you know what your pulse is and your, 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 your breath rate and your respiratory, all that kind of thing. They, they take your temperature and do all these different things. They, they find your vital signs. <clears throat> and I remember when I was in high school, uh, I took a class based on kind of medical professionalism, that kind of stuff. This is one of the first things we were taught, how to take vital signs. And I've forgotten it all now, so I, you don't want me working on you by any means, but that's one of the first things that happens. And certainly vital signs, they're called vital signs for a reason, because if if you don't have certain levels of vital signs, you're no longer alive. That's just the way that it is. If you don't have a pulse, if you're not breathing, there's no activity whatsoever, then you are no longer with us, as we say. And yet, if you do have those things, then you are alive. They tell you whether you are dead or alive. And you think about what constitutes life. I really believe that when you boil it down, it's activity that constitutes life. What can you do? And so you certainly are aware of that. There's activity that is reflected in vital signs. If a person has no activity in their heart, in their brain, in their body whatsoever, we consider them to be physically Yeah, there is outer evidence of what's going on on the inside. And I remember when when our, our oldest daughter, Lucy, was born, I was a first-time father. And and I, I, I don't think I slept much that first week because I would lay there in bed. Maybe you've been there. I would lay there in bed, and, and Lucy was in a bassinet next to our bed, just listening to make sure she was breathing, just sort of trying to see through the shadows a little bit. Is is her chest going up and down? Maybe you've been there. Now, listen, we're, we're expecting our fourth now, and, and you know, there's, you know what he or she would or whatever, you're going to be just fine. You know, we, we got to Nora, our third one, and, you know, where once we washed off the pacifiers, now it's just, you know, back in the mouth and all that. And, you know, a little dirt kind of adds to the flavor or something. You know, maybe you've been there. Those of you that have multiple children, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a first-time parent, you know, you're freaking out about everything. But I wanted to see Lucy's vital signs. I wanted to make sure she was breathing. There, there had to be some external evidence of what was going on inside. Now, it was important for me to know that. And the truth is that Christianity is no different. There are vital signs that we can take to see is our faith alive or is it dead. And James highlights that. And, and I want you to get from this particular passage, and we'll look at the next half next week, But from verses 14 to 26, there's basically one theme that James lays out. And it's a theme that's not something off the wall. It's not something that's going to shock you or throw you back in your seat to say, oh my goodness, how profound. Thank you, Pastor, for being so profound this morning. It's an extremely simple concept. A very simple principle, but it is true, and it is one that we have to understand and we must live by. And it's written there on the back of your bullets. And if you've got that, I want you to take it out, flip it over. Pretend that you're following along and we'll all be happy, especially me. What does the Bible say in this particular passage? Very simple. The Bible says that how you live reveals whether your faith is dead or alive. I want you to underline those words, how you live. Underline them. How you live. That's the key in, that, in, in what James is saying and the key in this particular statement. How you live. It's not what you think. It's not what you talk about. It's how you live that reveals whether your faith is dead or alive. Certainly Christianity is not a dead sort of faith. It is not something that Jesus came and he 
wanted us to just sort of exist and be split. Jesus came and he lived on earth. He was resurrected from the dead, so he still lives. The Bible even says that the Bible, the Scripture itself, is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. There is something about life that sort of is a theme throughout the Bible and what is to be Christianity. And so it's not something that is to be dead, and we know it is to be living and something that is active in our lives, and yet it is indeed how we live that reveals whether our faith is dead or alive. And I hope today that by the end of our time that you'll be able to sort of evaluate your life, determine what it is that, that is real or authentic about your faith. Is it alive or is it dead? Have you been playing a game for a long time, so to speak, pretending as if you are alive in, in your life with Jesus, or is it something that is not? And so if you go back to the previous passages that we've studied so far in James chapter 1 and James chapter 2, He really seems to spend a lot of time on this particular theme. And in fact, the whole book of James really, as we've entitled this particular series, Authentic Christianity, is sort of trying to help us understand, are we living a life that is authentic in our Christianity, or is it sort of a sham? Is it fake? Is it not real? Does it have any impact on us whatsoever? And so he spends a ton of time on this. I mean, I wonder sometimes why would he devote five full chapters to this one particular theme about trying to help us understand what authentic faith is about, trying to help us distinguish between living faith and dead faith, I think it's possible, just as Bruce Willis discovered in that movie, The Sixth Sense, it's possible to look at ourselves, to look at someone else and perceive them to be alive spiritually when in fact we or they are dead spiritually. I think it's possible for that to happen. I think James spent some time on that because it's possible to believe that you have authentic faith, living faith, when in fact your faith is really dead. Realize that it was a problem for them in that day, which is why James wrote the letter in the first place. But I don't think it's something that just stayed back in the New Testament times. Realize that over 80% of Americans would say that they're Christians. Over 80%. I mean, think about the people you work with. Think about your family. Think about the people that you went to school with this year. All your friends and your relatives and everybody that you come into contact with, people you see at Walmart and various stores and so on. If asked face-to-face, over 80% would respond, yeah, yeah, I I really believe that. Christianity is my faith. And yet, as you go through those faces and those lives, I would venture to say that you probably agree that very few very few of those supposed 80% of people who are Christians live as disciples of Jesus Christ. Very few. I mean, think about it. Think about it. Just run down your list, your family, your friends, of folks who you know they claim to be a Christian. They may even do some of the things that Christians do. Show up to church. Sort of stop talking a certain way or talk a different way or whatever. I don't know what it may be. But very few people live as disciples of Jesus Christ. Many have claims to Christianity, but few live as disciples. And so I think this is an issue for us today that we also need to address, just like James did. Because it's not what you say, but how you live that reveals whether your faith is dead or alive. And so over the next two weeks, we're going to look at opposite ends of the spectrum. This morning, we're going to see the characteristics of dead faith. And I I can assure you, it's not going to be extremely exciting to go through the characteristics of dead faith. 
but it's going to be revealing. And hopefully it will be convicting for some of us. Hopefully it will be a wake-up call to an extent for me and for us. And then next week we're going to look at the other end of the spectrum. What are the characteristics of living faith? What does it really mean to have authentic faith? And so I want you to look with me at, at your bulletin there. You'll see the characteristics of dead faith. I think James gives us three overall principles here. The first one is this. The one characteristic of dead faith is that there is a claim of salvation, but no life change. A claim of salvation, but no life change. Look back with me at verse 14 of chapter 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, there's your claim to salvation, but does not have works, there's your life change, can his faith save him? Other versions say, can such faith save him? Basically what James is saying, here's a rhetorical question. You say that you are a Christian, or you know someone who does, but there's no evidence of that whatsoever. Are you really a Christian? That's what he's saying. Okay, what good is it to, to say, well, yes, I'm a Christian, absolutely. 80% of people would say that. But there's nothing in your life that reflects it. James says, is that person really saved? And the obvious answer, though it's not given, is no. It's a rhetorical question. You ever had a rhetorical question asked to you? It's basically a question that really the person doesn't want an answer. It's just sort of maybe a stupid question they've asked. You know, it, it, this question about, you know, what good is it? It, it? Can that faith, can that kind of faith save him? Can just talking about Jesus save you? James says, no. There, 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 there's something in there that produces life change. It's sort of along the same line of, of other questions maybe that you've thought about, just stupid questions. You know, why does lemon juice have artificial flavors, but dishwashing liquid is made with real lemons? You know, it doesn't, it doesn't make any sense. Why, why do people who know the least know it the loudest? You've been there? Why do they know the least, but they know it the loudest? They'll let you know. And then, you know, I, I, I had this the other day. Why do you press harder on a remote even though you know the batteries are dead? Just a little harder. Maybe you'll wake them up, you know? Just ridiculous kind of things. That's what James is saying. So it's ridiculous to believe that just because you talk about Christianity, just because you know the right things to say, or you claim to have salvation. So it's ridiculous to think you really do if it hasn't produced any life change. Now, again, the, the flip side of this is if we begin to believe that James and, or I, in preaching this, talking about sinless perfection. That's not what I'm talking about. Just because you are a Christian doesn't mean that you, that you will never sin again. In fact, that's, that's quite the opposite. It means that, that though you do sin, you have someone who has covered your sin and forgiven that and given you new life and changed your direction. And so we're not talking about sinless perfection. Please don't read into that. But I really believe that, that there's a, an evidence on the outside of what's taking place on the inside. And James here is, is also not talking about salvation by works. Now, Martin Luther, who's a great theologian who began the Protestant Reformation, hundreds of years ago, he didn't like the book of James because he was a guy who, who touted the phrase, salvation by grace through faith. You, you know where that's found? Ephesians chapter 2. And so Martin Luther would say to about the book of James, throw it out. And he didn't like it because he thought this sets people up to think that you can earn your way into God's favor. That's certainly not what it's talking about at all. James does not contradict with Paul, the apostle, in what he says here. 
There's a difference between salvation by grace and, and, and this proposed salvation by works. The truth is, none of us can make ourselves savable. None of us. No, no matter how many good things you do in life, you cannot make yourself savable by God. Why? Because you are in your nature a sinful person, just like I am. And so the only way that we are made savable is because Jesus, who lived a perfect life, died on the cross as a substitute in our place for our sins, thereby making us in a different standing with God, whereby now we are savable because Jesus has taken our place. And so we cannot on our own make ourselves savable. So this isn't something that we need to read in and say, well, if I just do enough good things, then I'll be able to be saved. You know, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. For there's the kingdom of God. He says, blessed are you. You, you, are, you, are, you, you. you receive God's favor when you realize, finally, that you have to come empty-handed. Good stuff, bad stuff, it all gets thrown out. I come with faith alone. That's it. And so we cannot make ourselves savable. It's only by the death of Jesus Christ that we are even given the opportunity for salvation. So James is not talking about that we can earn our salvation. So when he says, if someone has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? He's not talking about, well, you need to be better. He's talking about an empty claim to faith, something that, that has no, no teeth to it whatsoever, something that does not produce life change. What he's saying is that those who are truly born again will display qualities of new life. Let your Bible open. I want you to turn with me to John, the book of John. Go to the New Testament. Stay there. Hold your place in James. Flip with me to John. If you have a little ribbon in your Bible, put it there in James. We're going to flip back and forth just a little bit. I want to show you how this is this is a theme throughout the ministry of Jesus and really the entire Bible. Jesus says in John, the story here of Jesus in John chapter 3, verse 1. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, John chapter 1. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And then Jesus replied, I assure you, unless someone is what? Born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Maybe you've heard that verse before. He's talking about here's what true salvation is all about. It's about being born all over again. Now, the next question Nicodemus asks him is, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense. How can a person who's already grown be born again? Is he supposed to re-enter his mother's womb? Of course, that's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about a spiritual birth. Why do we need a spiritual birth? Because we were born spiritually dead. But we have physical life. The Bible says because of our sin nature, we are born spiritually dead. We must be born again in our spirit, Jesus says. If you are born again, there will be evidence of a new life. My wife is pregnant. We are looking forward to, Lord willing, having another baby in November. When that baby is born, there is new life that, that by, by the grace of God will display qualities of life. And so James basically goes back to this theme that's through the Scripture and says, if something were dead, it has to be born again. We are born spiritually dead. We must be born again. And as a result, it will display qualities of new life. It's really very simple. And yet, of those 80% that will claim to be Christians, how many people get this wrong? Think about it. When I think about how many people who say, well, yeah, yeah, hey, I'm, yeah, I'm a Christian, absolutely. And James would say, show me. Don't earn it. That's not the point. But, but 
does it manifest itself? Does it come out in real life change? Jesus, I tell you, James rather taught about the results of true faith. That there is the proof of new life. The truth is that anything that is alive grows and it changes. It produces fruit, the Bible says. Fruit is a natural byproduct of authentic faith. The Scripture never, in the Old Testament and the New Testament, never allows for just mere claims of salvation. Oh, yeah, I'm a Christian. If your testimony is really only about, well, I was baptized as a kid, but, yeah. And I think you have reason to question that authenticity of your salvation. And certainly I would not be the one to judge that. Only you and God can know that for sure. But I would say that if you've had a claim to faith in the past and never seen any life change whatsoever, never been redirected in your life, I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but never had any change, I think it's right to question, am I truly saved or not? And certainly I don't want to cause doubt, because if you walk out of here today and you do something or say something that's sinful, I don't want you to think, well, I guess I've lost my salvation. That's not the point at all. The Bible makes it clear that cannot happen. That those who are truly sealed are truly sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Bible says. Until the day of, of resurrection, you are forever saved if it's real and legitimate. But how do we know? Well, it's fruit of new life. Truth is that truly being born again always, always, always results in life change. Always. Or else it's just an empty claim. It's just a claim of salvation. Not sinless perfection, but a redirection of your mind, of your heart, of your will, of your emotions, of your basis for decision-making, of your desires, of your response to all the things that James has mentioned in these previous chapters. He talks in, in chapter 1 about your response to trials, to temptation, to the Word of God. If you've truly been changed by God, then your response to those things will be different. Does that mean it's going to be perfect? No, but it will be different than it was before. There is a new life that has been birthed inside of you. You'll now have a love for God, a love for His Word, a love for God's people. You'll be made new. You'll be set on a course that is to be made more like Jesus. James makes it clear that those who claim that they have faith but don't live it out are, are foolishly deceived and are dead wrong. Just a claim to salvation can't save you. It's true faith producing life change that gives evidence of what has happened. In 1 John, I want you to turn to the right from James. 1 John chapter 2, this theme runs again all the way through the New Testament. In verse 3 of 1 John chapter 2, the Apostle John says this, This is how we are sure that we have come to know him, that we have been truly saved. What? By keeping his commands. What does that mean? There's life change. The one who says, I have come to know him without keeping his commands is what? A liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly in him, the love of God is perfected. This is how we know we are in him. Again, he just reiterates it. The one who says he remains in him should walk just as he walked. There will be life change. Have I hammered that point enough for you? So we're saying, will you please move on? Listen, I want us to get it. Because I really believe we live in a nation. We live in a time where many people are deceived into thinking that, well, if I just sort of wear the label, 
if I just sort of associate with those people, if I just come to church, if I just talk about the right things, then I guess I must be a Christian. And the Bible says it's more than that. There must be evidence on the in, on the outside of what is taking place on the inside. True faith always produces life change. The second characteristic of dead faith is this. There is a God bless you, but no real compassion or ministry. No real compassion or ministry. Back in James again, chapter 2, he gives an example here of dead faith. If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, that means they simply don't have what it takes to be able to survive properly in this world. They are in great need and immediate need. And one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? And so, so basically what he's describing here is a real-life situation. Christianity doesn't deal in hypotheticals. It deals in real-life stuff. And so he says if, if you come across somebody and they, are, they, they don't have the basics in life, they're sort of living day-to-day, week-to-week, month-to-month, wondering how they're going to survive, and you come into contact with their need, here's the dead faith response. Basically, you give them a bunch of cliches. Well, God bless you. Or, man, I'm sorry to hear that. This go in peace that he says was a typical Jewish farewell. Shalom, go in peace. Basically, it means I really don't want to deal with your problems, so I'll just tell you something to kind of make me feel better and hopefully pep you up just a little bit, and that way you're out of sight and out of mind, and maybe God will take care of you. And then when he says go and and, and you know, keep warm and eat well, it's basically saying, look, you know, go take care of yourself. What's wrong with you? you know, just trust God more. Maybe he'll provide. Sometimes we do the same thing. I think sometimes for us it's, well, I'm praying for you. And you walk away, and the next time you see them, now listen, I've done this. I hate to admit it. You tell somebody you're praying for them, and the next time you see them, you stop real quick and say a quick prayer. So you say, hey, I've been praying for you. You've been there and done that? Well, I tell you, I hate to admit that, but sometimes it's true. Hey, I'll be praying for you, and then the next time, well, goodness, I guess I better throw a quick prayer up because I promised them I'd pray for them. Or you, you say, let me know if you need anything. Well, that's a famous line. Those of you that have, that have gone through some difficult times recently, maybe you've heard that. I hear that a lot at, at uh, hospitals and funerals and different things like that. Well, let me know if you need anything. And I think that there's some sincerity there, but there's also a, well, I'm not really going to get involved if they need me to know where I am. Sometimes we do that, maybe just to make ourselves feel better. But sometimes the verbal concern of what we say, hey, God bless you, I'm praying for you, let me know if you need anything. Sometimes it's just a front. Because internally there's just indifference. We just don't care. James says that one of the ways that you can find out if your faith is dead or alive is, do you have real compassion or ministry? The Bible consistently links love for God and love for others. They are inseparable. That doesn't mean that just because you love people that you automatically love God, but the Bible makes it clear that if you truly love God, then you will also love people. In Matthew chapter 7, maybe we'll write down some of these references. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus gives the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. He's in this incredible sermon talking about what the people in the kingdom of God actually do. And he says, you're going to love each other. You'll love your neighbor as yourself, he says in Matthew chapter 25. 
and or through rather 22. Matthew chapter 25, he lays out this, this grand plan for who's going to be in the kingdom of God. And he says, it's going to be kind of like this. If you've done something, if you love the least of these, then you've loved me. Remember that passage, Matthew chapter 25? He said, you visited me when I was in prison. You gave me something to eat. You clothed me. You took care of me and so on. And they said, well, how do we do that? And they said, well, Jesus connects it. That, that if you've done that for others, then in a sense you've done that for him. John chapter 15, Jesus says, if you, you, if you love me, you need to love one another. By this, you'll know, people will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. And then, again in 1 John, if you've got your place held there, 1 John chapter 2, verse 9, John picks this thing back up, and it's always connected. He says in verse 9, the one who says he is in the light, that means I, I know and love God, I am a Christian, but hates his brother, is in the darkness until now. The one who loves his brother remains in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But the one who hates his brother is in the darkness, walks in darkness, and doesn't know where he's going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. It is directly connected that if we claim to have an authentic faith, that it will then manifest itself not only in how we live toward God, but also how we live toward others. You cannot, cannot be a person. I cannot be a person who claims to love God and yet has a hatred and disdain for other people, who will not take compassion and ministry directly to those people. The true believer has compassion and extends tangible ministry to those around him. Physical ministry, emotional, spiritual help. The truth is that loving others involves really getting your hands dirty. It's not easy. The folks who the Lord wants to bring to the church for ministry, many of them will have some really messed up lives. And you, we got a choice to make. We, we can either say, look, you'll get yourself cleaned up, and then you come back. Or we can say, just like Jesus did, look, come, come on in. Uh, you know, not, not just to this building, but to our fellowship, to, to, to our ministry. And you know what? We're just going to point you to Jesus because we can't clean you up, but he can and we're not what you need, but he is. We love those people, even though it means sort of getting our hands dirty, even though they're not exactly the folks that we probably first choose to associate with. Jesus did it, so should we. We cannot claim to truly know and love God without having a growing love for others that results in tangible ministry. And the third characteristic of dead faith is this. There is an acknowledgement of facts and truth but no trust in Jesus. There's an acknowledgement of facts and truth, but no trust in Jesus. In verse 18, James goes on and he says, but, it, but someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith from works. And in verse 19, he says this profound statement, you believe that God is one. That, that's, that's the Jewish mantra. They would always repeat this, God is one meaning that, that he is the only God. You believe that God is one, you do well. And then he turns around and he says, the demons also believe. They shudder. They, they, they have some fear because of what they know to be true. The demons know what their fate will be, that they will be destroyed. Real faith involves more than just knowing facts, more than just knowing what truth is. It involves believing and it involves trust. The question then becomes, how much do you currently know but aren't acting on? 
Sometimes no trust in Jesus. James really sort of talks about a person here who's acknowledged the basic fundamentals about the faith, but hasn't gone to the point of truly trusting Jesus with his life. Just knowing about God really it puts us in the company of demons. How about that? Oh, that's great. Walk away feeling like a demon today from church. Now, some of you, you were a demon at one point, maybe. Just raising a ruckus everywhere you went, and that's not what I'm talking about. But the Bible says that, you know what? The demons even know about God. He doesn't do anything for them. They just know it. But they live in opposition of the truth, even though they know what's going to happen. Just knowing the facts can't save you. You have to trust Jesus with your life. Jesus talked about it in Matthew chapter 7 when he said, If you hear these words of mine, and put them into practice, you're like a person who built his house on the rock. You build your house on something, you know what you're doing to the ground beneath it? You're trusting it. Jesus says, look, it's not just about knowing the facts. It's about trusting who I am, he says. True faith trusts one's whole life on Jesus Christ. Whole life, every area. doesn't just recognize facts about him. It doesn't just say, oh, that's great. But it's about trust and obedience. James chapter 2, verse 20, we close with this. It's this foolish man. And here's sort of the, the hinge verse of this whole passage. Are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? It's dead. It's doing you no good whatsoever. So James says, don't be fooled. How you live reveals whether your faith is is dead or alive. That faith on the inside is always, always displayed on the outside. Always. Believing anything else is foolish. 
be a Christian and just have it be a private matter between me and God. It goes against everything in the Scripture. Everything in the Scripture. Jesus came, lived publicly, died publicly, was raised, and appeared to people. It is a public deal. It is meant to be lived out. And so what do we do? I think three words sort of sum up our response. First is evaluate. Where do you stand? Take your spiritual vital signs this morning. As you think back through these characteristics of dead faith, have you made a claim to salvation? And if so, has that resulted in life change? Is there a difference in you? Have you been made new? Some of you say, absolutely, and I celebrate with you. Others would say, no, I'm not sure. Maybe you look at your life and you say, you know what, I, I, I sort of talk to people like I care, but I really don't. I just don't. People are an annoyance to me. They get on my nerves. I don't like them. The Bible says that's incongruent. They can't go together with authentic faith. So maybe you evaluate this morning. Or maybe you, you look at your life and you say, you know, I, I know a lot of stuff. I've been in church for a lot of years, but I've never trusted Jesus completely with my life. I know a lot of facts. I know a lot of truth. So evaluate. And then secondly, repent. Now that's a Bible word that we really don't like much anymore. But it's a word that goes throughout the Scripture, and I think we've got to teach it and preach it. And that means to simply turn around and say, you know what, I've been going the wrong way. So let me turn around. I'm going to turn from all this old stuff, and I'm going to turn to Jesus. So maybe there's an area of your life where you say, you know what, I, I, I want to change in that area. I'm going to make a mid-course correction. I'm going to turn from that old way. Maybe this morning for the very first time, you turn from that old way, which is just claiming that you have salvation, and you turn to Jesus for real life change. Or maybe today you look in your relationships with other people and you say, you know what, I'm turning from that old, kind of cold way of existence. I'm turning toward compassion, turning toward ministry. Or maybe... You say, you know, I, I'm not, I don't want to just know the facts anymore. I truly want to trust Jesus. And thirdly, it's very simple, commit. Commit. Our world doesn't like commitment much anymore. But Christianity is a lifelong commitment. It's an all-in kind of deal. It's not one foot in and one foot out. It's not the hokey pokey. You know, that's not what it's all about. You with me? You don't turn yourself around and all that kind of stuff. Christianity is not about that. It's an all-in commitment, <clears throat> a commitment to life change, a commitment to tangible compassion and ministry, a commitment to trusting Jesus in all areas. How you live reveals whether your faith is dead or alive. How you live. There's one last thing. James was writing to both individuals and a group of believers, the church. In Revelation chapter 3, we see the words of Jesus to a church in a place called Sardis. And Jesus says this, to the angel of the church in Sardis, right? The one who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says, I know your works. You have a reputation for being alive, but you are dead. Be alert and strengthen what remains, which is about to die, for I have not found your works complete before my God. And he tells this church 
You have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. And so my prayer for our church is that Jesus could not say those words to us. And he could not come to our church, so to speak, and say, look, you, you've got a reputation for being alive, but I know you're dead. My prayer is that we will be a church that does not display characteristics of just claiming salvation, but we display real life change. And we don't just talk about loving people, but we do it in tangible and real ways. And we don't just accumulate facts, but that we trust Jesus, not just as individuals, but as a church. And if we do, the Bible says that we cannot imagine, the mind is not conceived, what God has for those who love Him. I have no idea what God can do. I've never seen it fully. I'm not sure that we have. And so my prayer is that Jesus could never say those words to us. That we as a church would say, let's strengthen whatever is there. Let's trust Jesus with all we are. And let's live for him in this community in such a way that Jesus could never show up and say, you know what, your reputation is life, but reality is death. Well, I hope he never says that to us. And so let's turn to him this morning. Let's evaluate where we stand. Let's repent if need be. And let's commit to being the kind of people that display real life change. Let's pray with me. Heavenly Father, even in this moment, would you teach us and help us to see you. Remove the blinders. Help us to know where we stand before you. Maybe there's a person here, Lord, who needs to give their heart to you for the very first time. To get past just talking about being a Christian and to actually trust you. So, Lord, pray you give them boldness and courage. Lord, for us as a church, I pray, God, that we would evaluate ourselves both individually and collectively and be sure that our claim to faith is not empty but involves real change. That what we say to other people isn't just sort of a, a masking of our indifference, but, God, it reflects true compassion and ministry. Lord, that we not just accumulate facts and truth. Sort of recognize that and say that's good, but God, that we would trust you in all that we are. Or may we never display those characteristics of dead faith. I pray that you would revive us. Make us new all over again. I pray in Jesus' name.